This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. I'm going to continue on because we've been in Genesis, so we'll look at the story of Noah, the second part today, and actually it covers so much ground that we're going to talk about him a little bit next week as well. So really three weeks because there's, there's more on him than there is word for word. There's more on Noah, uh, the story of Noah than there is on the creation than there is on Adam and Eve. I mean, there's just a lot of material. So we're going to continue on in that. But I do want to say happy Father's Day. I'm going to say it's a joy to serve in a church with some of the best fathers on the planet as far as I'm concerned. They're just great role models all around us. So you guys, we love you. Thank you for uh, for the priority you place on um, uh, those of you who are married who are placed on your uh, loving your wives and uh, caring for your kids, loving your kids. So this, we're just rich, rich in role model. We got a lot, we're all imperfect. And we all got a long way to go. That's a given. But there are some, by God's grace, some wonderful role models in this church. I'm so thankful for each of you men. Well, let's pray and we'll jump into uh, Genesis 8. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for salvation in the midst of judgment. Thank you for mercy to a remnant, even in the midst of justice. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today, and uh, we ask that you would reveal yourself. Lord, there are many interesting things in in this story. There are many places we could go, but I just pray that you would keep our focus on you that you would lift up Jesus in our midst, the resurrected Savior, and that our hearts would be uh, lifted to you, we pray. So Lord, speak to us. And I pray for those who are experiencing difficulty and suffering or those who have lingering, lingering uh, effects of trauma in their past or uh, just devastation in their lives. I just pray that you would give hope today that you are the God who recreates and grants new beginnings. So come, Spirit of God, and encourage us, we pray. Help us. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the passage we're going to read today, which is the second part of the story of the flood, I mean, all kinds of issues are addressed here, and we could camp on any. Matter of fact, I pulled out an 800-page book yesterday on Christian ethics, because there's a lot of topics for ethics that are actually covered in here, and I closed it and put it back up, because we just do not have time to uh, cover all this, and I want, and, uh, but here's the kind of things that this passage ultimately talks about today. It talks about natural disasters and the future of natural disasters. Uh, that's addressed in here. It talks about animal rights, um, God's provision for animal and rights for animals. It talks about vegetarianism, and I don't know what the other is, meat-atarianism. I, I am that, whatever it is. Uh, carnivore, I guess, talks about being carnivorous. Uh, it talks about capital punishment. Uh, in this passage. Uh, in ecology and environmentalism are addressed in this passage. So there are so many current topics that we could launch into. And that's not surprising because the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. So if you read the book of beginnings, especially these first 11 chapters, you understand how God ordered the planet and what God's purposes are uh, through us. We've looked at marriage and work and all kinds of things uh, that God talks to us about. So there's a lot of topics he talks about here. But here's something we learned last week as we read the story, which was pretty dark. It wasn't the children's story that we read last week about the archie archie as we talked about, but it's really a rather dark story about uh, 
God destroying all the life that he had created. And we, the, probably the big takeaway we point we learned uh, from an interpretation point of view last week is this, is that Noah is an entirely flat character in this narrative. He never speaks. So we imagine Noah pleading with the people to get on the ark. That's just not in the Bible. We imagine Noah talking to his sons about building the ark. That's not in the Bible, though they may have helped him. We don't know. Um, <clears throat> But he just never speaks. We don't, know what God's, we don't know what his questions to God are. We don't know what his burdens are. We don't know what his fears are. We don't know what his joys are. He never speaks. All we know is what he does in response to what God commands. And the big point of that is it's not a story about Noah. It's a story about God, and it's a story about salvation. And God emphasizes that point by having Noah, who really, though he's all over the place, is a very bit character. That it is God on center stage, God who is acting. We learn that from this story. So here I want to look at four actions of God in the passage we're going to read today. Uh, and we're going to cover chapter 8 and half of chapter 9. First of all, we're going to see how God remembers. We're going to see how God promises we're going to see how God blesses and how God reveals. So this is what God does in this passage. He remembers, he promises, he blesses, and he reveals. So last week was somewhat dark with a hope. We kind of looked towards this week with a hope, but this week is really tremendous hope. But let me read. So we're going to read um, the first section God remembers. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 19 of 8. But let me, let me look back at just 723 because this is where we ended last week, and it's so, so uh, sobering. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then, Noah, then God said to Noah, 
Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by the families, by families from the ark. So God remembers. Look at verse 1. But God remembered Noah. That verse is the midpoint. So half the story is before that, half the story is after that. That is the midpoint. And as the midpoint of the story, it serves as the focal point of really understanding what God is communicating to us in the passage, that God remembered Noah, that God rescued Noah, saved, preserved Noah and his family and all the animals. Now, when the Bible uses particularly this word, meaning remember, what, he doesn't, what it doesn't mean is that God had re- call of Noah. It does not mean that God destroyed the earth, uh, had Noah build an ark, uh, let it rain, let him go, and then forgot. Oh, what, what, like I saved some people, didn't I? No, God is, knows everything. God is, has all knowledge. So it's not that he, it's not talking about mental recall. It's the kind of remembering that is tied to action. When God remembers someone in the Bible, he is moving towards them. When God remembers, it means that he is coming to help that he is being faithful to his promises. He had made a covenant with Noah in chapter 6. So he's remembering, he's acting, this is what it means, he's acting on the promise he made to his people. He's intervening in love for their benefit. That's what the remembering means. Now here's what's so interesting, and this is why it's helpful to read the Bible in context. If you've been around since chapter 1, some things in this chapter are going to really sound like what we read in the beginning. So for instance, in verse 1, he remembers Noah, and this is what he does. He made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain up from the heavens were restrained. So there are all these waters that are covering the earth and now he, he sends a wind and that, that causes them to dissipate. So the waters, in the, in the Old Testament, waters always represent chaos, the, the place of uh, chaos. And, and uh, here he is sending his wind over the waters of chaos and he is abating or dissipating the waters. That's just like chapter 1, verse 2, when it says the Spirit of God, the word for wind and spirit are the same. So the wind of God, the Spirit of God, hovered over the waters, and then he creates. That's chapter 1, verse 2. The exact same thing is happening here. This is a recreation. This narrative, this story is the recreation. So God creates everything, chapter 1. In chapter 6 and 7, he decreates everything. That is, he destroys everything but Noah and his family and representative, representative animals. And now he's going to recreate it, and he's going to use the same language. So we've got chapter 1 here. The, wa- the, the God made the wind blow. The same, the same word for spirit, hovering over the waters, and he causes the waters to dissipate. God remembers, he moves toward uh, Noah, and now he's recreating. He's going to recreate the world. He's going to, in essence, have Noah re- repopulate um, the people on the earth. God is bringing, he's bringing uh, order out of the chaos once again. The, wa- the earth is flooded 
It's chaotic, it's out of control, and now God is bringing control and order to his creation. Once again, God always does that. God does that in our lives. He takes chaos and disorder and he brings it to a place of order for his glory. So the next thing that happened is Noah sends out some birds. That was a common practice. Ancient navigators would send out a bird to to look for land, and that's exactly what happens. He sends a raven. It doesn't return. He then sends a dove who finds no place to land, and so the dove returns. Now, somebody asked me yesterday about birds and, you know, could the birds have survived the flood? There's birds on the ark. Uh, Birds were brought on the ark because birds would not have survived the flood because um, the, the, I mean, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and there was still water for 150 days before that. And then 150 days after it stopped raining, uh, no, I said that wrong. There's 40 days and 40 nights of rain. And then the water prevailed for 150 days. And then this chapter tells us that the waters abated for 150 days. By the time we're done, they were in the the boat more than a year. And so uh, while a bird could fly in rain, uh, there was no place to land or nothing to eat. So no bird could have survived uh, the flood. They couldn't have suspended themselves up in air. So he had birds with him on the boat, uh, and he sends this dove out. And there's this beautiful picture in verse 9 where it says that uh, the dove found no place to set her foot, She returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the earth. So that's the issue. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. So Noah here is is compassionate towards the animals, caring. He takes the animal, puts his hand out, the dove comes to him, and he brings the bird into the ark. Well, uh, he waits seven days, and then he sends another dove. And uh, this dove comes back, verse 11, behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So the the leaf is, is a sign of life. There is now new life. There's a new creation. Trees are growing. Uh, plants are growing, the, the olive leaf comes and he knows uh, that there is a new creation, that God is restoring, God is renewing. This is big themes that we get here in God. God is holy and judges sin. God is a savior who preserves people who believe his word as Noah did. And then God restores and God uh, brings new life out of death. These are big themes that are throughout the Bible. So the next thing Noah does is he, uh, he lifts the covering of the ark. Verse 13, in the first month, the first day of the month, uh, the waters were uh, dried, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and the face of the ground was dry. Now this is so interesting because the next verse it says, so he sees it's dry. That's the first day of the first month. Uh, verse 15, then, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 14, in the second day, In the second month on the 27th day. Okay, so that's the next month on the 27th day. So it's 30 days the first month, 26 days the next month. So it's like 50, 60 days before he goes out, even after it's dried. So he looks out again. Then God tells him in verse uh, 15, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives. So he looks and it's dry, but he waits until the next month, three weeks into the month. So let's call it six or seven weeks. He waits six or seven weeks. They've been on there a year. You'd think he'd be a little itchy to get out. Uh, and, but he waits. Why does he wait? 
The text does not tell us, but the text does tell us this, and I think this is significant, that God said to him to go out, and then he went out. Noah is waiting for God's instruction. There is nothing about this that pictures Noah saving himself. There's nothing about this Noah protecting himself. It is all God saving. And he's not, even after it's dry and they're on the mountains of Ararat, he's not even going to step out until God speaks. God speaks, God tells him to, and then they move off of the boat. And he steps into a new world. God remembered Noah. God's faithful to his covenant with Noah. And Noah steps out into this new world. Can you even imagine what that would be like? One commentator, Kidner, says, he steps into a virgin world washed clean by judgment. He steps into this brand new world. Everything he has known is gone. Every person he has known is gone. The locations he has known, he's not there. Uh, He's in a different place. He steps off this boat with just his family into a new world. God remembers Noah. The next thing God does is he promises to Noah. Look at verse 20. We're going to read verses 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark, what is the first thing he does? Very first thing he didn't, I mean, I'm sure he just, who didn't holler it, I would imagine at some level, but the first thing the Bible records is that he worships. He worships the God who preserved him. Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered a burnt offering on the altar. You remember when we read the account, there was two different accounts. Chapter 6 said God told him to bring two of every animal onto the ark. Chapter 7 said he brought seven of the clean animals. And we said, well, that's not a discrepancy. It's just a further a furthering of the story. They're not mutually exclusive. He could bring two of every animal, and he could bring seven of every clean animal. Both are true. And the reason he did that is because he would be ready to offer a sacrifice to the Lord here. So he takes some of the clean animals, some of the birds, and he offers them. It's an offering that represents gratitude. It's an offering that represents uh, his commitment, the commitment of the worshiper. Uh, And also the offering, at least as it's recorded for us in Leviticus, in Leviticus 1, the burnt offerings were for atonement as well. So this is often, this is later in the scripture, this will be an offering that is offered for, for the forgiveness of sins. So likely that's in mind here as well. He offers up sacrifice um, to the Lord, and the Lord forgives him. The Lord forgives. There's a principle here that will run through all the Scripture. The Lord forgives based on substitution. So the Lord has another die, an animal, and he forgives the sins of the person, a principle throughout the Bible. And then we get this detail, that when he was burning the animal, there was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now that may be literal, you know, maybe actually what happened, I think we're firing up some steaks this afternoon, so there will be Father's Day steaks. There will be a pleasing aroma to the father of the house. Uh, so there's probably something 
that happens like that. But really, that's, that's not what's, it's not smoke that we're talking about. It's not like, man, I love the smell of barbecue. That's not what he's talking about here. It's, it's, the, it's what is coming off the sacrifice, how that honors the Lord, how the Lord, how the Lord's holy revulsion against sin is, uh, how that mitigates that, how the, the aroma of the offering is a pleasing to the Lord. Now, if, if the sacrifice of some clean animals and some clean birds was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, how much more, how much more the sacrifice that these pointed to, the sacrifice of Jesus. God uses the exact same words about the death of Jesus. In Ephesians 5, it says, walk in love as Christ loved us. Listen, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So God is pleased with the offering of these animals, which represents gratitude, which represents commitment, which represents atonement for sin. But how much more, when we get to the New Testament, is God pleased with the offering of Jesus, the substitute of Jesus Christ? God, uh, Noah offers animals as a substitute for sin, but Jesus loved us and gave himself, is what the scripture says. He gave himself up for us, an indescribable love. Here's what's interesting about this story to me, is that this story rattles our sensibilities. And I understand that. It rattles my sensibilities. It's, it's kind of shocking to think about God killing every person on the planet. That's kind of shocking. And when we read the story, that is oftentimes what rattles us the most, is that God destroyed what he created, that God destroyed people, that God destroyed animals. How could he do that? But the real rattling event of the story is not that God destroys sinners or a corrupt creation. It's that God becomes man in the New Testament in Jesus and that God comes to us and that Jesus offers himself as a substitute for our sins. An innocent person who obeyed God's law perfectly, that he gives himself that God judges, that's not the strange work of the Bible. The strange work of the Bible is that God has mercy the, the strange work of the Bible is that God forgives. The strange work of the Bible is that God, it's not just that God uh, renders judgment, that God punishes. That's not the shocking truth. The shocking truth is that God punishes and that God takes his own punishment in Jesus. That should rattle us. The rattling thing here's got to be that, that Noah is saying, why me? I mean, we, the Bible doesn't tell us. He never speaks. But I can only imagine that on the boat, Noah is saying, why me? As he, as he experiences the destruction all around, why am I preserved? Why am I saved? And that's the question for the believer today. It's not why does God judge sin? It's not why does God pour wrath out upon sin? It's why did God substitute himself for my sins? That's the amazing news. The mercy of Jesus, the mercy that God would take his own punishment and that that would be a pleasing aroma, Ephesians 5, 2, the pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's also strange that God just, a strange mercy that God allows us to live on. You would think, well, after the flood, everything must be different. After the flood, everything must have changed. Absolutely not. Look at what the next verse says in verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
That's what he said back in chapter 6, is that every thought of people all the time continually was evil. They were violent, they were corrupt. It reads like anarchy in society, probably far worse than anything we've experienced as a society, was the pre-flood society. But still, even afterwards, he says man's heart is evil uh, from his youth. See, the strange work is not the work of judgment. It's grievous. It's sobering. We can't explain it all, why God does what he does. But the the unusual work is that God then has mercy and that God allows them to live with, with no explanation of why that is ultimately except in God. They're not worse, you know, it's not like the, the, their sins are so much worse than ours uh, or something like that, and they were punished. No, they're, they're, God continues to allow people to live even though their hearts are opposed to him. And we're going to see that really quickly. This is great. Noah's worshiping. Noah's grateful. Noah's obeying. Next week, Noah's going to be passed out drunk. Well, not next week, but in the sermon next week, he's going to be drunk. And then in the next week, the people are going to, in their arrogance and pride, make this monument to reach all the way up to God in the Tower of Babel. That's coming next. So the next two chapters, it's not all, you know, lightness and sweetness. And uh, aren't the people wonderful? We're, we're getting right back into sin. It's taking no time at all in the text. But God is patient. God is merciful. And why is that? Because God is a gracious and a merciful God. And he promises here, what is his promise? Never to strike down the earth again as he did. So God remembers, God promises. And the next thing is God blesses. God blesses. Look at uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For you, I'm sorry, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So does it feel like we're back at the beginning of Genesis? This is all a recreation, isn't it? So at the beginning, we have the spirit over the waters creating the earth. And in and Noah's case, we have God remembers Noah, and the wind blows over the waters again. Well, now when we get to chapter 9, we've got what we call the creation mandate, what God told Adam and Eve. Verses 1 and verses 7 are the same. God blessed Noah, and his son said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, Be fruitful and multiply and, and increase greatly in the earth. So whenever you see that in the Bible, Whenever you see a verse kind of mirrored like that, it means that's a unit. God's communicating something in there. And what he's communicating here is he is blessing his people, and he is communicating he is the God that blesses life. He is blessing a multiplication of life in this passage. He is reestablishing the creation mandate. This is what he told them in chapter 128 to Adam and Eve. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now there's some differences. And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. 
Verse 29, I'm in chapter 1, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding its seed on the face of the earth. So be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the animals I've given you plants to eat. Now, in the recreation, it's be fruitful and multiply, verse 1 of 9. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens. The animals are afraid of you. That's what's happening now. So this is different than in the beginning. Why are the animals now afraid? It doesn't tell, but here's what I think is a fair guess. Because they're going to be hunted and eaten. That's why the animals are afraid. Before, uh, we don't know that there was never any meat eaten before here, but we know at the beginning there was a, uh, th- that he provided plants. Here he's providing animals and plants. So he's telling them, he's telling man that he may now, that he may, may now eat animals. Again, doesn't say this is the first time ever, but clearly he can eat animals at this, uh, at this point. So that's something that uh, is different from the beginning, that they will be, uh, the, the animals will be afraid and that he may eat them. And I think the two go together. Probably there's probably some kind of fear. Now there is a provision. They can't just eat animals, but he says this, uh, verse 3, every moving thing uh, that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So this is probably squeamish discussion. Like, if you are a vegetarian, this is probably really squeamish, and you're saying, that's why. Uh, he's saying you can't eat blood. He's saying you need to drain the blood from the animal. So you can eat beef, you can eat whatever, but you cannot drink the blood, consume the blood, eat the blood, of the animal. Why? Well, because throughout Scripture we see that, that life is in the blood. That's actually what he says. You shall not eat the flesh, the life, that is its blood. The life is its blood. And then he says, and for your life, blood, life is in the blood. So God is allowing man to eat animals, but not the blood signifying that that, that life ultimately belongs to God. That God gives animals, for some animals, for consumption for man, but he does it, we don't own the animals. There can't just be wanton destruction of animals. He owns them. So that, the sign of that is you cannot eat the blood because the blood is the life and I own the life. God, it rules over the animals, but he does let them eat it as long as they drain the blood. So this is all about life. Multiply, let's have more life. You can have animals. Uh, and then he goes on to protect human life. Verse 5, the lifeblood I, I will require reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require reckoning for the life of man. And then he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God is made in his own image. So he says two things here. One is that if an animal kills a person, the animal should die. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is that, uh, that he is instituting that Man is to take the life of man if a man kills someone because they are taking life which is in the image of God. In other words, he is talking about capital punishment here is what he is referring to. Now, if we think about what happened before, this has never been mentioned. When Cain killed his brother in chapter 4, God did not take Cain's life. Cain did not forfeit his life when he committed murder. And then, evidently, this just got worse and worse because by chapter 6, it said that all of society, every person's thoughts were evil all the time and that they were corrupt and that they were violent. What happened? Well, life was devalued. The first son, the first two sons, the first family, Adam and Eve's kids, there's a murder. 
And then the cycle just runs on through generations, and evidently life became completely devalued. And God is showing here that he values life, even animal life, that he values life. And so he's saying if a person takes the life of another, uh, that he is delegating responsibility for justice to humanity. So this is kind of the first mention of um, ruling authorities in society or government or the state, we could even say. So he is, he is saying that that is the case. This gets picked up in, in the New Testament as well. Paul in Romans 13 says that we are to submit to the authorities, for the, the authorities are delegated by God to punish wrongdoers. Um, they don't bear the sword in vain, he says. They bear the sword, why? Because they are delegated by God to be instruments of God's justice in humanity. So God uh, actually says that people are going to be agents of his, uh, of his authority. Now, obviously, I could do a whole message. We could do a whole series talking about things like this. This is when I pulled out my ethics book and realized I don't have time uh, to talk about this now. But maybe we will do a series on quick uh, Christian ethics. Let me just say this from a practical, current point of view. There are godly, Bible-believing Christians that come down on either side of uh, applying capital punishment in a modern, secular society. Uh, so there are God-fearing people that read the Bible that come up with different conclusions. I think this is important to note, though, wherever you land on that, it's important to note from right here that someone who would oppose, um, those of us who would oppose capital punishment in today's society have to come up with arguments, could be biblical arguments uh, for that, but one argument that cannot be given is that God's opposed to it, ultimately, philosophically, conceptually. Um, that he's opposed to the concept of society taking a life for taking a life. I love how Kent Hughes expressed this. He said, to argue against the death penalty on humane grounds is to uh, argue against God's word. It exists precisely because of God's humane concerns. He, he puts it into play because he's concerned about the preservation of humanity. And society got into a place where it was anarchy, people killing each other all the time, evidently. And so he implements it. So there may be very good reasons that in a secular society where uh, there is not fair justice, where there's judicial abuse, where there's racial inequality with regard to executions, where you can't certainly tell who did what, there may be arguments to oppose it. But the idea that it's inhumane uh, would be to argue against God's word. So there needs to be other arguments uh, to oppose it if you oppose it. And if you're for it, certainly it starts right here is where we see the first picture of it. So God preserves life. He does not want it to get out of control again where there is chaos and violence and corruption. Verse 7, be fruitful and multiply. He wants to see there to be uh, population growth. He wants them to propagate life on the planet. He wants lots of people uh, on his planet to know him and follow him and serve him. Uh, he's going to give them meat uh, to eat, and he is going to protect people so that we don't get to what we had before. He multiplies life. He protects life. God is a God of life. What's the point? Out of death and destruction, God comes out forcibly mandating life, life, life. God is pro-life here in what he is communicating. And lastly, God reveals. Verse 8 through 17, he reveals. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. 
It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God reveals a covenant sign. So he's making, he's establishing his covenant with God. We talked about that last week. A covenant is a a formalized agreement between parties in relationship. Probably the closest thing we have to a covenant in our society, well, we have marriage covenant, we'll talk about that, but we'll be like a legal contract where there are requirements for each party uh, based on a relationship. And this, this one is unilateral. It is God who's promising. In, in, in the ancient Near East, if, if you read, or I've read about them, I haven't read the mythologies of the ancient Near East, but it's typically people leverage things from God. So people make arrangements with gods by doing certain things to get the gods in their debt. But that's not what's going on here. God, Noah's done nothing to put God in his debt. Matter of fact, the text says that people from their youth will be evil. And God's saying, I'll never destroy the world again. It's unilateral. It is grace. It's universal as well. Everyone is affected by this. That's what we call common grace. Everyone is affected. Everyone gets the benefit of we're not destroyed as a planet by water. Everybody gets that benefit. It's God's common grace, universal in its effect. So what has brought destruction, the rain, the clouds, there will now be a sign in the clouds of God's, uh, God's preserving his uh, creation, God's forbearance with his creation. He will never again destroy all things on the earth. And he gives a sign that is beautiful. The rainbow is a picture of God's beauty in place of justified judgment, which he could bring again, but has chosen not to. It's a sign of God's common grace to all people. It's a sign of hope for us as well. James Boyce said this about it. He says, God, about the rainbow, God is the God of beauty. God makes signs of beauty to say, I know that life is filled with tragedy, sin is ugly, but I am the God of beauty. I am the God who is able to overcome these things, and I call you away from them to myself. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation, he goes on to write, we have a picture of God sitting on his throne around which is a rainbow. Look forward to that and let God's beautiful sign minister to your soul. It's a powerful, powerful sign of, uh, of God, God who uh, has already remembered, God who has already promised to his people, uh, God who is now revealing a sign, a covenant sign, that he'll never do this to the world again. What's the big idea of the passage? How do we apply something like this? Well, I think the main idea to draw out of it is that God brings beauty out of devastation. God brings beauty out of death. God brings new life out of death. God brings light to darkness. God brings flourishing where there is death. 
God is, is a God who recreates. God restores. God is merciful to sinners. God forbears. Wonderful truths of how he responds to Noah. What a traumatizing experience for Noah and his family, and yet they are preserved. They are in a new world. I mean, think about this. They are in a new world where uh, they, they have been through extreme tragedy. Even though they have lived, every person they know has died outside of their family of eight. Every person has been destroyed. What a disorienting. Nothing is familiar. They are the only ones alive. And I don't care how much you love your family. There's always a few in the family, right? I don't care how much you love your family. To be the only people on earth, this, this is it. There's no other place to go. There's no other people to interact with. It's just us. <laughs> they, they are, everything is gone, and it is just them. And, and yet God has given this universal sign, and God has restored them. God brings beauty out of trauma, new life after death. Now, this is a sign of the covenant that God is making. In the New Testament, we have signs of the covenant, too, that are far greater than a rainbow. We, we have the, the, the sign of baptism, which is God, new life in Jesus, God providing new life in Jesus. Baptism means that God has brought us into his family, that we've died to our old way of life, and that we've risen to walk in new life. So we have baptism is the sign that God saves us. We don't just have, we have the rainbow as well, that God will never destroy the earth by flood again. But we have a greater sign in that God has adopted us into his family through Jesus who died and rose in our place. We have the sign of the Lord's Supper, that Jesus' death for us is to be a regular reminder that our sins are forgiven, that he's put us in his family, that he's holding us in his family, that we're united to him and we're united to his people. See, in the Bible, when God acts to demonstrate his covenant, his commitment to us, he often gives some kind of sign. To Abraham, it's going to be circumcision. Uh, in Exodus 20, to when he gives the law, it's the Sabbath that's the sign of the covenant. And in the New Testament, it's a sign of baptism, and it's, the sign of, uh, and it's a sign of the Lord's Supper. Signs that show us that life has come from death. He is conforming us to the image of Christ. He will return for us. And, and even the grievous sins that we've committed, or the grievous sins that have been committed against us, God can bring beauty and does bring beauty out of darkness. God brings beauty even out of death. God brings, he is a beautifying God. Even the symbols that we celebrate, baptism is something, representing something reprehensible, death, the son of God crucified, and yet we're raised to walk in new life. It's the most beautiful sign imaginable, but it's life from death. Or the Lord's Supper, that we're drinking the body and the blood of Christ, representations of the body and blood of Jesus that his great death has forgiven our sins and made us one with his people. So it's beauty brought out of something that is so grievous, the death of Jesus Christ. So where is it in your life today that you want to see God's beautifying work in your trauma, in your death, in your grief, in the difficulty of your life? What is it in your life that you need to trust God for to meet you? You know, today is a hard day for some people. There are people in the room who had a terrible relationship with their father. Uh, he was absent uh, and uninvolved and unloving and detached. 
or he was present and abusive and angry and harmful. And if you have those kind of memories, today it's hard to get ramped up to get into the celebration because the memories for you are haunting and they're what you wished would have been. And according to God's will should have been, God's, plan, you know, God's uh, standard of scripture should have been, but weren't. And so some of us today have lingering difficulty and pain. Even in that, God can bring grace, restoration, and healing. This is the greatest devastation imaginable, the destruction of the planet. And God brings new life out of it. And he does that in our heart through difficulties and tragedies as well. Or maybe you're here as a man and you long to be a father, and you're not. You've, you've not found a wife or you're married, and, you're, uh, and as a couple, you're uh, unable to conceive. And so today is a hard reminder for you that I want to be a dad, but I'm not. Even in that pain, God can bring beauty in your life. Or maybe this is the first year um, since you're, or the second year, it could still be very raw, the third year, that you've celebrated a Father's Day since your dad died. And today is a painful day for you. God knows that pain. Jesus died for our pains and our sorrows, and God can even bring beauty in our heart as we trust him in difficulty. It's not easy. I don't have a pat answer, but I'm saying the principle of God is he does not throw his people into destruction and trauma and devastation and say, work your way out of it. Noah doesn't do anything. He just does what God tells him to do, and God saves him. God brings the rain and then causes it to start, stop. God gives the new mandate. God protects life. God makes him fruitful so that he can multiply. God does all of this. God recreates his creation. There's creation, decreation. Now there's recreation here. God does that uh, again. And so he can do that in our lives. Maybe it's something very different for you. Maybe it's not Father's Day that you're struggling with today. Maybe there's something different. Maybe a sin that grips your life. And man, like last Father's Day, you thought, boy, a year from now, I probably won't be struggling with that. And you're right in the middle of it still. There's sin that hangs on to your life. Or there's, there's addiction that you wrestle with that maybe other people in the room, in your church, maybe even in your family, don't even know about. But there's a hidden addiction. Or maybe it's a more public addiction where sin's grip is on you. And it's ugly and it's traumatic and it's dark. God brings beauty out of our brokenness. That's God's, God's way of working with us. God's way. God is showing mercy to those who are evil since their youth is what he says in chapter God is merciful. He brings life. Maybe there's something dark in your heart today. Grief over someone's death. Depression. Loneliness. Maybe you're disillusioned with your life. As our church ages, and we, uh, many in our church, are getting older to stages of life, getting more where, well, lots of us are on the back nine. Let's just say that. We weren't when the church started. We're playing the back nine, and some are got the clubhouse in sight, and you're getting up to putt on your final green or whatever. But, you know, one of the darknesses that happens that I've observed uh, as people get older is oftentimes there's a disillusionment with life. It didn't turn out the way I thought. It didn't pan out. The hopes and dreams of my teens and my 20s aren't my realities in my 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. There's a dark disillusionment in one's life. Regrets. Would have, w- wish this would have, wish that would have. And, and we're, we're plagued by disillusionment and grief. Self-pity sometimes brings that. 
God brings beauty out of devastation. It is never too late. He brings life out of death. He brings hope to those who have endured suffering. And he gives this beautiful sign of the rainbow to demonstrate his mercy, that he is holding back his judgment. And he is, by common grace, extending grace to his people. And through the new covenant signs, that through the bloody death of Jesus, there is hope, there is life, there is new life, there is forgiveness, there is adoption into God's family, there is union with Jesus Christ. Maybe that's what it is for you today. God's made a covenant with us. He's given us a sign that's much greater than a rainbow. We have an empty tomb after a cross to celebrate the life of God. And God saves and restores us. And here's a key. As we receive his word. That's what Noah does. Why does Noah build a boat to save himself? No, because God is saving him and he is following God in his plan. That's, he finds salvation through believing the word of God. When he gets off, he worships. He doesn't get off the boat until God tells him to. He stays on the boat an extra six weeks, whatever it is, until God tells him to get off. He's listening to God. He's following God. And God is rescuing. God is restoring. God is multiplying. God is gracious to him. So God makes a unilateral covenant with us, and then we receive by faith what he does. We receive from his word, and we follow him, and we experience this this new life. We experience restoration. We experience recovery. And so though it's a very dark story in the first part of it, it ends with a rainbow. It ends with a sign, a beautiful sign of God's mercy, uh, God's mercy to the planet, and then ultimately God's mercy to us as we move later in the Bible and in the New Testament. God's mercy to us. So whatever you're facing today, God brings a beauty through it. He brings new life. Through barren times, a flower comes up in the desert. Um, God is merciful. And the way we experience that is we come to him and we cast ourselves upon him and we ask for his help and we listen to his word and we cling to his word like we have nothing else. We cling to his word and his word alone. And through that, God restores Um, in varying ways in our lives, and then one day completely when he returns and we will see him face to face and the restoration of all things will be there. And there will be a rainbow around the throne of God showing his mercy. There will be a lamb upon the throne. Baptism and the Lord's Supper point to that lamb. He will be upon the throne and we will experience a joy indescribable in a new world that's not the world after the flood, but that's in a new heavens and a new earth, completely recreated for his glory and for our good. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, may, may God pour out his grace upon those who have experienced trauma and suffering today. Today's a, you're in darkness. May light break, break forth into your life through Jesus. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.